But let me tell you that for some of you that have gone through perspectives, uh, you were stretched, correctly? Uh, you read books and you read the text, which is probably that that big. Uh, even perspectives, that book at times is used in a seminary setting to teach missions or the mission of the church. So I just I tell you that uh, as a reminder that you'll, you would certainly hear some terminology that you're, you're not familiar with, just like the term prolegomena on what you <laughs> received when you came in the door. What is that? You should have heard Don telling me uh, once he looked on my desk to find these handouts. He said, it's P-R-O. I said prolegomena. Yeah, yeah, that's it. So we'll talk about those things. So terminology may be ramped up a little bit, but I'm glad that you're here to, to learn. Uh, it's impossible to learn something, certain things without expanding your vocabulary and being uh, patient and understanding. And some things can't be explained without difficult terms. It's just the way it is. And so we'll hold that tension and I'll do my best to help you understand that. So tonight, we just want to do an introduction to theology. That's kind of the goal. Uh, We'll talk about where we're headed over the next few weeks. Next week, I'll probably still be mainly in an introductory stage where we'll talk about maybe some of the world religions and how important it is for you to have a Christian worldview and how that affects the way you think about syncretism and pluralism and all these isms that are out there in the world. You need to know those things today. Why is that? Because Jude, you know where that book of the Bible is? The one right before Revelation? It's just one chapter. So technically when we say Jude, we say Jude 3. That doesn't mean the third book of Jude. It's the third verse, right? Jude 3 says this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered for the saints. I think that's a good way to start any kind of discussion on doctrine and theology. We have a faith that we must contend for. And it's important that we know what we believe, that we're able to communicate it, we're able to think through certain parameters to arrive at decisions that we make. And all of that has to do with how you believe. So the church of God, which he purchased by his own blood, should be able to define and defend that body of truth that's been committed to us by God for His care. We're, we are to defend uh, the faith. So the people of God must be equipped. Why? We need to be able to distinguish between truth and error and good theology and bad theology. We need a revival of theological knowledge and understanding in the church. And for years and years, that's kind of been a thing that, unfortunately, pastors forget to do. I don't think you can be a pastor and not be a theologian. It's not fair to your people. Because if you just hiccup and bump over certain things, then, then we're, not, we're not hearing the full counsel of the teaching of the Word. So we, I have a responsibility to be a pastor-theologian. Not just to be a pastor, but to know what I believe and, and to not shy away from explaining from the Word what I think you ought to believe, right? According to what the Scripture teaches us. So we need to regain a love for the great doctrines of the faith. 
we need to understand that it's God's infallible and inerrant word that gives us the doctrine that we believe. We need to recognize it in the unity of faith and practice. Now check that out. Faith and practice. We've been spending a lot of time in the book of Acts, correct? And what we've learned there is that Paul was exemplary in establishing doctrine and duty. In other words, what you believe should affect the way you behave. Uh, Paul was a master of this. He taught that faith and practice should go hand in hand. What you say you believe in the faith that we're contending for must come out in the way that you practice your faith and how you live that. We can't separate orthodoxy, which means what you believe, from orthopraxy, the way you practice what you believe. So Paul didn't see a dichotomy between the theology of the church and the mission of the church. Paul saw uh, the mission of the church being a theological principle of understanding who God is and understanding what the mission is that we have. This is, this is affirmed in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Uh, some favorite verses of mine. I urge you, therefore, brethren, in light, in view of God's mercy, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, but be by the renewing of your... All right. You said it. Now, do you believe it? It's through the renewing of the mind, and the mind is so vitally... Important. So it's the importance of the mind in the life of a believer, but it's also calling upon us daily to renew our mind, which will result in a transformed life. That's vitally important. Now, there's no room in the church for people's attitude of anti-intellectualism, but there's also no room for intellectual egotism or pride. Both of those things need to be put to the side. Does that make sense? Is that right, Daryl? There are a lot of people who feel like, well, I know it all, and I'm, I, you can't tell me anything, and you're an egotist about it, of course. And there are others that say, you mean you went to that cemetery? I mean seminary, right? If I heard that once growing up, you know, I was encouraged in many ways when I left uh, Bowman Baptist and started thinking about uh, bachelor's level and seminary level and doctoral level. I always got discouraged at some level by people who were anti-intellectual. So we don't, there's no sense in going, oh, if you go off to seminary, preacher, they'll ruin you. Well, I don't think so. Not if you uh, believe the Word of God, and not if you have a desire uh, to not boast in what you learn, but uh, to be a blessing to the church. And so there is a, there's a balance between uh, learning theology and being a pastor, and the same is true for you in, in your own Christian life. So the frame of God's glory, to me, would exclude anyone from being boastful and also exclude anyone from being anti-intellectual. We're, we're dealing with a, a God who is absolutely awesome. Uh, and we will never plumb the depths of who our God is. So we're absolutely dependent upon revelation for God's, uh, to, to consider how unfathomable he is. The Bible says his judgments are unsearchable. So theological education exists, at least in part, to equip us to have the ability to think, to reason, to analyze, to learn, to systematize, to come away with uh, truth that we can impart to others. 
So think about this. When you learn theology, you're not just learning it for yourself. You're raising kids. uh, You've got family members. You've got acquaintances that you see. And the goal is for you to learn theology so that you can impart that to others. So that we can become better Sunday school teachers. Right? Uh, So that we can become better leaders in the church. Theology is so important. And I dare say, I don't think anybody in our church would, well, I don't think any of you here on Sunday night would purposefully want to stand before your people and or engage in a conversation when you knew you were in error. Or you knew that you were uh, tightroping a fine line of something in the Bible that you may slip off the side and you're not going to be actually square on it. So disciples of Jesus Christ must be thinkers whose minds are captive to one thing, the Word of God, and whose entire intellectual structure is shaped and determined by biblical truth. That's what we want to become. We don't need to be afraid to say that we're captive to the Word of God. Amen? That that's the basis. It's, we, ought to, we ought to wear that badge uh, with intellectual honor and integrity. That we believe the truth and veracity of Scripture. So here's what we're going to do. Y'all ready? During this time of study, we're going to develop a theology for the church. Now I say that because just being, just thinking, well, I know some theology. Well, what does that, what difference does that make for our church? So I think, I don't think you can separate good theology from our church or from uh, the church that Jesus said is the pillar and ground of all truth. Not the Catholic church, right? Not um, a church that doesn't believe the scripture. We're talking about the church as far as the body of Christ, those who have been blood-bought, redeemed, and part of the church, whether it be local or universal. We're talking about how does our theology shape our view and understanding of the church. And here, this will be our strategy, if you want to jot this down. We're going to study all the major doctrines that you see on the flip side of here, uh, and, and that will happen as we go through. But the questions we're going to ask are these questions. What does the Bible say? For every one of those doctrines, we're going to ask that question. What does the Bible say? Second, we're going to ask, what has the church believed? Think that's important? Through time, what has the church believed? Third, how does it all fit together? So what does the Bible say? What has the church believed? How does it all fit together? And fourth, what is the significance of the doctrine for the church today? We're trying to make this practical. That's a good, what good does it do to study the doctrine of salvation if we're not going to turn around and say, okay, how does that apply to the church today while we are living right now in the age that we are living? So let's talk about that for a moment. First, what, is this, what, what does the Bible say? So we're going to give primacy to the Bible. Y'all okay with that? We're going to let biblical revelation help us understand what uh, this principle is and how we should define it. So scripture is absolutely foundational for uh, Christian theology. Biblical illiteracy is a great enemy of the church. And it is true at this church. Uh, I can go ahead and tell you, it's true at this church. I could tell you at least on 10 occasions when I've dealt with someone that either disagreed with me or challenged me on an area, and I would say, okay, let's open the Bible and talk about this. Well, preacher, I don't know my Bible like you do, or I don't know what the Scripture says on that. Then why are you arguing with me? 
right? I want to say, folks, please, uh, we, we need to know what we believe. And you've got the same Bible in your hand that I have. And, and by all means, if, you, if there is a question or a, or a conflict or a tension, at least come with an open mind and an open Bible to say, okay, here's where I see you and I would disagree. And or here's a theological principle I don't grasp. And that's all fine and good. But biblical illiteracy is a great enemy of the church. While many people revere the Bible, they don't read and study their Bibles. And as a result, they are ignorant of its wonderful truths, and they do not see how the great doctrines of the Bible are defined and developed. And, and how do you hold a tension, uh, a mysterious tension on certain things that we're never going to wrap our minds around, but you don't throw one out at the expense of another. You hold that tension because the Bible does. So my number one desire is for you to grow, for me to grow, for all of us to grow more and more in love with the Bible, and for us to know it better. That's the goal we should have at FBCO. If we can teach our children <coughs> and teens science and math and history, have y'all looked at some of that homework that comes home with our kids? I mean, <coughs> I can't figure it out because you've got to do it five ways to come up with an answer. And then I was a kid, I could come up with that answer in five seconds, and it was a good answer. But that's not true today. But if our kids can learn all those things, they can also learn theology. With the dip, if you can learn chemistry and trigonometry and, and whatever else is out there, uh, physics, you can learn the Bible. We just use that as an excuse often to say, well, it's just difficult and I'm not sure about it. So, I'm convinced we can teach them the Bible and we can teach our kids theology. So the first thing is, what does the Bible say? We're going to ask the Word of God that question. What does the Bible say? Second, what has the church believed? If you think the knowledge of the Scriptures is anemic in our day... I must say that familiarity with what happened in the past and what church history is all about is pretty much non-existent. <clears throat> People have no idea. That's why a Catholic can say to you, well, uh, Jesus, the Catholic Church started in 33 AD with Jesus Christ. And you just believe that hook, line, and sinker because you have no idea what happened in early church history. You don't realize that the early church never accepted the Apocrypha. They never accepted the rise of the papacy. That wasn't true. Just because Constantine could start a religion doesn't mean it was the Christian religion. Correct? So we just take things and we, we have no idea what we believe. And so history is vitally important. So we must look into the doctrinal development of various uh, periods of church history we need to study the great events of history to help us understand how we've arrived at how we think today in church life. And, and then third, how does it all fit together? And that'll, uh, the goal there will be able to have a coherent thought process of, of, of Bible teaching as we consider doctrines in the light of the entire blessing of the whole of Scripture. Because we've been given a whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And, uh, and more, uh, three-quarters of your Bible is pretty much Old Testament. So we don't want to throw that out as well. We want to consider the whole thing. So the greatness of our God will necessitate that we live with varying degrees of tension and mystery and the formulation of Christian doctrine. Uh, although we cannot say exhaustively that we know Him, we can say we truly know Him. Because you're never going to exhaust our God. You're never going to have <clears throat> complete knowledge of all that there is to know about our God. Okay? 
We can know propositional truth about God, right? Uh, what does it mean to have presuppositions? If you'll look on this side, there are presuppositions. It's prior suppositions that we have about a given subject. And when you enter a theological study, if we, we certainly enter tonight with a presupposition that we believe the Bible is true. We go into this study believing that. We believe the Bible is understandable. The Bible must be interpreted plainly and naturally. And since the scriptures contain the objective revelation of God, they alone are authoritative. So we are going to have propositional truth that we believe about our God as entering into the study. And we can also know him personally and intimately. And then finally, fourth, what is the significance of the doctrine for our church today? I would tell you that God's truth is unchanging and it is eternal. So what that means is when God said something in the past that is binding, it's still binding today. Right? It is eternal in its truth and it is unchanging. Our task as theologians, of what you're going to be when this is over, right? Our task is to demonstrate the relevance of the Bible for contemporary society and audience. Because each generation is going to have particular questions that are often characterized by unique concerns. For instance, just think about transgender. Just think about homosexuality. People today base everything they, the world bases everything they believe about it on the way they feel or uh, the way they think society ought to operate. But the fact of the matter is, all of society operates outside of the vacuum in their understanding of God because the natural man doesn't discern the things of God. So we're dealing with a whole lot different ballgame. But at the same time, if you're a believer, uh, we, we don't change the truth of God's Word no matter how much we get forced by our society to do otherwise. We stick to what the Scripture says. All right. We're done. No, I'm just kidding. Write down Roman numeral one for tonight. What is truth? Is that a good way to start about theology? The task of theology cannot be separated from the pursuit of truth. So herein is the issue. Uh, what is truth? Do y'all remember someone who asked Jesus that very question? You remember? Listen. Chapter 18. Of John's gospel. And Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For the, this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world. To bear witness of the truth. Now check this out. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? So, well, that's, that's a great sermon there, is it not? Where Jesus says, For this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness of the truth. And Pilate turns around straight from his lips. And again, let's say, let's think about the fact that from the lips of Pontius Pilate composed that question that has perplexed the human mind throughout all time. You think about all the philosophers that have dealt with that. What is truth? And all the ink and the time that's been put in, humanly speaking, which I want to remind you, the natural human being can never understand truth apart from the giver of the truth. Now think about that. Think about all the ink, 
all the time, all the philosophizing that's gone through all generations of people to try to arrive at this issue, what is truth? So the spirit of the question is actually seen in Pilate's tone. Is that it is as if at the same time he's inquisitive, but he's dismissive of, of what Christ would even answer. So Pilate saw life how? In purely pragmatic terms. Uh, as a skeptic, he talked about truth and God as mere niceties in a world filled with brutal political realities. Is that ever true today? We could almost, in the halls of Washington or wherever you are, uh, around any po- uh, polit- politicians, ask that question, what is truth? And Katie, bar the door with the kind of responses you're going to get. So Pilate may have been an armchair philosopher, but make no mistake about it, he was not intellectually or morally neutral. Because what did he do? He handed the Son of God over to be crucified despite the Lord's innocence and despite his own wife's dream that the Lord said, you best not touch this righteous man. But still, uh, in the midst of all of her nightmares and how she pleaded with her husband, he still handed him over to be crucified. Augustine once said of Pilate, Pilate refused even to bother with Jesus' answer to his question. The pursuit of truth cannot be separated from the task of theology. Like Pilate and human beings, we all must be confronted with the truth claims of the Lord Jesus Christ. All claims of truth rely on presuppositions about what is fundamentally real. And we know that, don't we? As a born-again child of God, we see different from the world. And that's not an accident. So, if a person regards a particular aspect of reality as necessary, he has given it the status of being something that is ultimate. And if something is ultimately necessary, it's arguably, it has arguably obtained a divine status. So, ultimately something is going to function in a person's world view as primature of religious authority. You're going to have religiously some type of authority that's going to drive your life, uh, whether you're lost or saved. That's just the way it is. Because, why? Because God has made us in His own image, and He's made you a worshiper. And you're going to worship somebody or someone your whole life. You just want it to be the king, right? You just want it to be the Lord. So did you know that every discussion of truth will wind up being a debate over some kind of theology? However hidden or uh, under-acknowledged we might say, it's still coming down to an issue of religion. Uh, We are, again, created for worship. And many of the people in this world serve something called cognitive idols. It's just the God they've made up in their mind. It's just uh, how they're thinking about the world ends up being the God that they serve. More pointedly, uh, when it comes to truth, we believe Christian theology, we make a bold assertion about truth. And that's this. Goodness and beauty cannot be known apart from God. He is our author. So that's a bold assertion. Isn't it? And the world doesn't like to hear that. More pointedly, we believe that truth in the Lord Jesus Christ challenges the notion that God can be known apart from revelation in Jesus Christ. So we make the bold assertion that not only can you, you have no idea of real beauty and truth apart from God, 
But you can't know God, period, without Jesus Christ. And folks, that's what gets us in trouble as Christians, right? Uh, that's why uh, Paul got in trouble in Acts. Because we're not only saying you can't, that, that, truth, that truth and beauty can only come from God. We also make that bold assertion that you can't know God at all apart from Jesus Christ. I am the way, truth, and life. No man can come to the Father except through me. Paschal contended for precisely the same point. Here's what he said. Not only is it through Jesus Christ alone that we know God, but it is only through Jesus Christ that we can know ourselves. We talked about that in Isaiah 6, did we not? With the holiness of God. He went on to say, we know life and death only through Jesus Christ. And without Jesus Christ, we do not know what our life, nor our death, nor God, nor ourselves really are. He's on to something because he's right. In the same way, without the Scriptures, with which, who's the focal point, the the sole object of the Scriptures? It would be Jesus Christ, right? We know nothing, and we see only darkness and confusion in the nature of God and the nature of ourselves. So, that's a scandalous claim to the world for us to say that we're totally dependent on someone else to give us understanding and knowledge. The world doesn't like that. Uh, We want to think that we're totally independent, that we don't have to worry about anything, that we make our own way. But that's not true according to the Bible. It's an affront to human pride for us to suggest that man exists in relationship of radical dependence upon a God who started everything and has given us divine order. The world does not want to hear that. It's out of step with philosophical self-confidence to confess like Theologian Carl Henry does that all merely human affirmations about God curl into a question mark. Isn't that true? From the human perspective, without God imparting knowledge to us, every question about God curls into a question mark. Aren't you thankful that God has spoken to us through His Word? That He's given us divine revelation through His Word? Uh, We need to be thankful that he quickens us through the word so that we do have understanding. So, here's the deal. If pure philosophical and natural law could lead us to transcendental verities, what's that mean? If human knowledge alone could help us grasp the fact that God exists and that he's transcendent, if we could do that humanly on our own, then God would not have to reveal himself to us. But folks... You can't do it on your own. The natural man can not discern the things of God. Folks, you better be thankful that God has spoken. God speaks and He is not silent. We need to be thankful for that. Left to ourselves, there is no way possible that we would ever understand God. That we could ever know who He is. Anything about Him apart from divine revelation. So... Unfortunately, even the best human minds that the world has ever known from our perspective. Now remember, God takes the foolishness, right, and turns it around. But from our perspective, we think about the great minds of the world. They failed in their attempts to imagine something more godlike than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what is truth? That, that's, we have to start there. And, and our response would be truth is reality. And there is no truth apart from the Lord. Starting point of our God. Second Roman numeral. A working definition of truth and why it depends on God. So what is the definition of truth? A working definition of truth and why it depends on God. Truth is that which corresponds with reality. 
Truth is the opposite of that which is false. Now the question arises, of course, is, is this. Where does truth come from? And the answer is truth comes from God. That's, that's kind of basic, isn't it? It is. It's a mirror of God's being. The notion of truth is inherently a religious idea. Got it? Only an eternal, transcendent, sovereign God could create everything in such a way as to make the universe knowable and personable and understandable. Only God could do that. So as one theologian said, our God is the principal explainer of everything that exists. He didn't stop there. He turned around and said he is also in the position to be the explanatory principle of why everything does exist. That's only because our God could be that. He, he sits in the position of being the explanatory point of everything in this world and the explanatory principle by which it has its very existence. That's the God we serve. So, only the God of biblical proportions, biblical proportions like we're talking about, uh, could create, maintain, disclose the nature of everything that exists in this universe. God, His omniscience, Omniscience, let's start there, entails what? It's the truth that God never learns anything. That's enough to blow your mind, right? Because you're trying to learn stuff tonight, and you're like, this preacher's wacky. I'm not getting this. But think about it. God never learns, nor does he rely on any information that he himself did not create and sustain. Isn't that awesome? That's who we're dealing with here. We're dealing with God who doesn't learn anything, and... The information he has is in himself, and he created it, and he sustains it. He's never confused about any issue, nor is his mind boggled about any dilemma that would be similarly confronting us, even right now. That never happens to our God. He never slumbers. He never sleeps. Psalm 121, so God holds every aspect of reality together. Hebrews 1.3 talks about God holds all points of reality together. That's an awesome statement. Conversely, what do we know about ourselves? That's right. We're limited. We are limited. And we have incomplete knowledge. Now think about that. God is omniscient. He doesn't learn anything. He, he's created all things. He sustains all things. But that's not true of us. We are limited in our knowledge. We have incomplete knowledge. We are utterly dependent upon the tools of discovery to try our best to figure out what reality and what truth is. I mean, that's, even if you're using empirical thinking, or you're using rational or uh, intuitional thinking or revelation, it's still a tool to discover the gifts from God. Is that not true? We're, tr we're still trying to discover things by the gifts of God that He's given to us. So every generation that has ever lived has sought to uncover knowledge to theorize on what goes on and to systematize it and to apply it to life. It's called epistemology. What does that mean? Well, it's the theory of knowledge. Now, folks, that's a good thing to think about. Where does knowledge come from? Uh, what is our starting point? Uh, no matter who you are, your epistemology is a gift receipt to you. Uh, you don't have all knowledge. Uh, you're limited. But God has designed it in such a way that we have certain gifts that help us. 
so, in other words, epistemology is the theory of knowledge, especially with regard to methods and validity and scope. I mean, this is true in everybody's place of work. Whatever you may have, you start off with some kind of epistemological groundwork uh, to make your job go or, or how you think about things. So, it's the investigation of what distinguishes justified belief from an opinion. Okay? I know that's kind of, we're, we're, we're going through some mud there. I, I realize that. But it's important for you to think like that because you've got one of these. You've got an epistemological frame of reference whether you know it or not. You've got a knowledge uh, and, and of distinguishing what in this world is justified belief versus an opinion. Uh, all of us have that filter. So people receive wisdom from tradition. Uh, they discover norms that are already out there in reality. And then they uh, have direct verbal communication uh, from God's Word. Right? And all of that comes in to the uh, enormity and diversity of how we look into things. Now, folks, let's all be honest. The universe will humble you. Uh, just think about some of the scientific things you've looked at and how the design in order. And, of course, we hear on the radio or TV all the time that Mars is floating off and some kind of big giant crater is about to hit our country. And, and we think about all the things that are out there and how expansive the, the universe is. And we used to think that there was maybe one or two galaxies, and now there's I don't know how many millions of galaxies, and we're not the biggest one, right? Just think about the magnitude of God's creation. It will humble you. But by its very nature, therefore, human beings, find, we find ourselves full of questions, full of mysteries, full of antinomies to look at the world and say, now, how does this work, and why does it work? But the good thing about it is, the, well, here's the deal. This doesn't mean that truth can't be acquired. It can be. You can learn and you can know. The deal is you've got to put yourself in a position to know such things. And the hard fact is only a self-disclosed God of the biblical type can prove such resources through both an orderly creation and also verbal communication. God has put and designed the universe to function as it does. Not a textbook at school. Right? God has done this. That's why we see orderly creation. I don't understand how uh, materialists and naturalists come away with an understanding that everything that we have can, can exist like it does with complete design and not just go out of function. Just totally be gone. Uh, it's an impossibility. There's no question about it. So, We've got, to, we've got to, in human terms, our dependency must be upon God. We, we have to depend upon an omniscient being, and that doesn't set well with human pride. We can give you, I can give you a depiction of this with a Christian thinker named Richard Pratt. He came up with this little model. You can't see this far. But there's a circle on the left that has God's knowledge, independent, complete, no mystery at all. Okay, let's, we believe that from the Bible. And on the right side, you've got co two conduits of revelation, natural and particular. And then you've got on the bottom, human knowledge, which is dependent, incomplete, and full of mystery. And when you ask, what is natural and particular revelation? Natural revelation is this. God created the whole world, and you can visibly look up 
and know that someone has to be behind this creation. And that is found in Romans 1. That's called natural or general revelation. The whole world. Here's the scary thing. The whole world is pronounced guilty before God based upon general revelation. Based upon the fact that God created the world, according to Romans 1, all mankind is guilty before God and knows that God exists. Now that's why it's important to think about intelligent design behind everything we see, right? You better think about that because you're guilty before God because God made it. And it says it clearly in Romans 1. However, there's a not only particular, but there's natural or general revelation. There's also particular revelation. And that's what God has said in the Word of God about His Son and how you are saved. That will become particular, right? As a means of being saved. So I, I give that to you so that we're able to think through that parameter and think and have a Christian worldview. All right? Now, let me introduce you to an argument. Uh, y'all remember taking any classes in school? Tell me some of the arguments that you may have talked about in school about the existence of God. Y'all know any of those? Y'all remember any of them at all? Y'all didn't have that in school? No, there, there were certain uh, philosophical things that people would use to try to prove that God existed. Like uh, ontological or uh, teleological. There's different things to say, well, God has to exist because of this. Well, I want to introduce you to one that probably makes more sense for us, and it's called the transcendental argument. And what that states is, you know how an atheist will say, God doesn't exist. It's impossible for God to exist. The transcendental argument says it's impossible for God not to exist. Right? Let's just be honest. When you look at the world and creation and order, we come to the place as believers where we say, our argument is transcendental, meaning we believe in a transcendent God, and it's impossible when you look at our world to say that God doesn't exist. Now, you may not understand all the ramifications of that, the fact that He does exist, but our presupposition is it's impossible for Him not to exist. In other words, do y'all know who Richard Dawkins is? Is he still living? He died of a major disease, right? But Richard Dawkins was an Oxford University zoologist, and he was also a committed naturalist. So he believed that nothing existed, existed save the physical properties of laws that govern our universe. So everything has to be material and physical. Y'all understand that, right? So to him, immaterial cannot exist. It's only what you see. In his worldview, there's no God, but he has a major problem. In his studies, he sees that the universe that he actually studies shows every indication that... It has been put together by an intelligent designer. Yet he cannot admit that. Why? Because it would destroy the fact that he is a naturalist. As was the case, he penned a work called The Blind Watchmaker. Isn't that hilarious? There's a watchmaker out there. Like you would wear a watch on your hand and you're like, how does this thing function? Well, you know, that thing's complicated. It's real little on your wrist, but it functions. And you know a designer had to design that watch in order for it to work. 
He would just say, well, I think the watchmaker is just blind. So in other words, there, there, is intelli- there, there is design and order, but it's blind. There's no way that it's actually a person behind it. So he pins the blind watchmaker, and he makes this statement. Biology is the study of the complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed with a purpose. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? You know, and him being the renowned zoologist and atheist, he comes away with the understanding of studying biology that it's the complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed with a purpose. That's kind of like our world that we live in. All the evidence is right there. Uh, as a matter of fact, Richard Dawkins was guilty as he wrote that statement. According to Romans chapter 1, he's without excuse because intelligent design did create the world. So he claims that the universe is not the plan of a personal creator God, but it's the result of an impersonal and indifferent natural law that operates in a predictable, rational, and scientific pattern. Do you know the probability of that actually taking place? It takes way more faith to believe that hogwash than what we believe, right? So he concludes this, in spite of what seems very obvious to be the case, that intelligent design actually made the universe. How would the transcendental approach of of what I'm giving to you as an argument, how would you deal with someone who comes up to you, young people or uh, adults, and say, I believe in the blind watchmaker. I, I believe that there's the appearance of design and order, but I can't accept that, and our, so there's no, there's no personal creator whatsoever. How would you respond to that? Well, the Christian would like to hear from Dawkins on what grounds he knows their predictable laws of biology, or he knows that there are predictable laws of biology in a purely naturalistic universe without a creator. Where do you get the law from? Right? If everything is material, then uh, laws and logic are actually immaterial. How does he get that? It's a good question, right? One of the greatest uh, arguments ever, you've heard of those atheists that talk to believers. Well, one of the big ones was, I think his name was like Bashan, who was a Christian, and he was arguing a guy named Stein, and you can find it on the internet and read about that, but that's what happens with them. They meet each other, they're kind of shooting stuff back and forth on stage, and they begin a discussion on what's material and what's immaterial. And finally, the atheist says to uh, the Christian, well, so you believe God is immaterial? And he responds by saying, exactly, he is immaterial. And then he says, well, if that's true, Christian, then can you name anything else in this world that's immaterial? He said, yes, logic. You see where he's headed? Your logic is immaterial. So that's a self-defeating argument for you to say that nothing exists that's not material when you use laws and logic. The question is, where does that come from? So don't believe. uh, Just because they stump you one time, don't take it hook, line, and sinker. Carl Sagan said, the cosmos is all there is, all there ever was, and all there ever will be. And the people believe that eliminates anything to do with anything that's immaterial. That means they believe everything is materialistic in definition. That's a huge problem for a naturalist. Why? Because they believe in scientific laws. And scientific laws are immaterial. you got a problem with that. That's just like the statement 
a relativist, somebody who believes in relativism, doesn't believe there's absolute truth. Okay? Y'all don't know the difference. Well, how can they say, as someone who believes in relativism, how can they make an absolute truth statement that God does not exist? That's self-defeating, right? You just hung yourself. You say there are no absolutes, but you just said God doesn't exist, which is an absolute statement. You understand? Uh, it's it's self-defeating, it's contradictory, uh, and it doesn't hold water. So is it material? What is a law? Is it material or immaterial? And exactly, it is immaterial. So who has the superior epistemology? Christians or those in the world? I'm just telling you, folks, we win hands down. There's just no question about it. We have a privileged position because a naturalist theory rests on human independence. Whereas the Christian theist, our views rest upon an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, personal, transcendent God who is above all things. And that's why we make a transcendental argument because God is above all things. Isaiah 6, right? We put our faith and stock in a God who is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. So without the God of the Bible you got all kind of troubling situations that arise uh, of how the world functions. How can, being, how can being humanity arise out of material? Uh, or how can being rise out of non-being? If the cosmos or world is mechanical and inert like they say. How can you have life if it's totally mechanical? Good question, right? How do we explain personal versus impersonal, if that's the case? How do you explain order versus disorder, if it's all mechanical? How do we explain cause and effect without an ultimate cause to everything in the world? We, uh, we know this. How can an atheist rely on logic when he only accepts materialism? It's a good question. How can you? You have to ask the questions. Any true prediction ultimately relies upon presupposing a world that only God could have made. And that's what we believe. This is why it's so important to introduce a pagan to the message that there is an eternal God who's the creator. You know, that's one of the missionary evangelistic strategies nowadays. You go in and you start at Genesis 1-1. Correct? You want the individual that's a pagan to start to understand a different worldview and the worldview is this. There's no way this world exists apart from a God who created it. It's absolutely true. So it's imperative to the church as well. Left to ourselves and the world left to themselves, they can't have this comprehensive worldview without God speaking to them through his word. All right, point number three. Let's move off that. That was long, wasn't it? What does the Bible say? The scriptures begin with the express, here's the presupposition of the Bible, in the beginning, God created. No elaborate proofs, no epistemological arguments, right? Uh, no arguments whatsoever. God, in the beginning, God created the world. Support of God's existence. There's, there's no support in the word of God undergirding God's existence save the implicit argument that it's impossible, to the contrary, that he doesn't exist. Right? It just states it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. No support, 
No argument, no proof whatsoever. It's taken as a given. And that's the way the Bible presents our God. The Bible presents Him with the impossibility to the contrary. He must exist. How about the Bible's radical claim to knowledge? Are you all staying with me? What does the Bible say about knowledge? It points that every bit of the knowledge we have and are able to contain comes from God's revelation and His Word to us. Proverbs 1.7 says to its readers that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Paul makes the matter even more explicit when he writes to the Colossians that in Christ are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now catch that, that's Colossians 2 verse 3. He's not just referring to spiritual or theological truths. All treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Jesus Christ. Well, that's a comprehensive statement, folks. But that's the absolute truth. Um, It plainly says, all knowledge, all truth. Now, how does it all fit together? Well, theology defined is this. We have to start somewhere. And that's kind of what this is for. Prolegomena. We're about to wrap this thing up for tonight. I promise you the rest of the lessons won't be this difficult. All right? I'm just trying to plow the ground. So prolegomena means first things or those things of, of importance before you actually... The word's taken from the Greek, and it means what needs to be said before one begins. That's all that, begin, that's all that means. What, what should be said before we begin to think about theology? In other words, shouldn't we have some ground rules? Uh, shouldn't there be a, a playing field uh, for what you should expect and as you enter into a discussion? Well, God is a personal deity, right? He desires uh, to have fellowship with those that He's created and made. And when He reveals Himself, He's showing us ultimate or intimate details about His being and His nature. It's not an accident, therefore, that the word truth... Remember back at Pilate? What did He say? What is truth? Did you know, I had a friend that uh, wrote a THM in seminary on truth as given in the book of John. And the word truth is aletheia in the Greek text. And when Pilate said, what is, Jesus said, I have come to bear witness of the truth, that actually means, when Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, it actually means without veil. So when Pilate asked what is truth, he was looking at it. Y'all with me? When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, when Jesus said, for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness of the truth, Pilate was looking at the truth. He himself is truth unveiled. And I would add to you that you can't know truth apart from Jesus. Not full sense of the word of knowing what truth is. That's an awesome thing to think about that connection in the book of John. It's not an accident. So, As fully God and fully man, Jesus was in every way the very Word of God. That's who He is. So, the entirety of all the Scriptures and all the divine revelation of the person and work of Jesus Christ characterizes what evangelical theology really is. uh, About who Jesus Christ is. who, Who is the Son of God? And so, Henry offers this definition of theology. The proper task of theology is to exposit 
and elucidate the content of the Scriptures in an orderly way and by presenting its teaching as an orderly whole to commend and reinforce the worship and service of the Son of God. So, you want that again? Huh? Y'all want it one more time? Henry, it's a good definition. The proper task of theology is to exposit and elucidate the content of the Word of God in an orderly way and by presenting its teaching as an orderly whole to commend and reinforce the worship and service of God. In other words, if we just fill our minds with knowledge and theology but we don't serve and worship God, we're, we're missing it, folks. So what we learn theologically, uh, we stand on the fact that our God created the world, that He is the intelligent design behind all of it, and we stand on the fact that the Bible is written for the purpose of disclosing for us the person and work of the Son of God. Folks, that's not just true from Matthew to Revelation. That's true from Genesis to Revelation. This whole Bible is about the Son of God. Right? God is the center of it all. Unless you hadn't checked lately in your trinity of your understanding of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But the Son of God is God. Right? And so the, the work of Christ is set forth before us so that we serve the Lord. Alright? Now, uh, let's conclude by looking at uh, just this side where it says prolegomena. Um, so there is the necessity of theology. Uh, foundational principles. Where do we begin? Well, in order to describe Christianity, in order to define Christianity, in order to defend it. That's why it's important that we know theology. Okay? Don't be afraid of it. Uh, to think about God or the study of God. There's nothing wrong with that. You need to know it so that we can describe it, defend it, uh, define it, and defend it. That's what God has called us to do. There's the possibility of theology. Why? Because we've got the Bible. His revelation has been given to us. Now, when we say revelation, you do understand I'm not talking about the book of Revelation at that point. Now, that is the terminology. Apocalypse means to unveil. It is the word. But when we say revelation, we're talking about the Bible as it is written and given to us from Genesis to Revelation. That is revealed truth given to us by our God. So we have the Bible. We know the nature of man. That's not good, is it? We know man is rational. That means we can learn. And we know man, God created man as a spiritual being. And then there's the presuppositions of theology. We went over these when we started. The Bible is truth. It's understandable. It should be interpreted plainly and naturally, and since the Scriptures contain the objective revelation of God, they alone are authoritative. That's kind of where we start from. That's our prolegomena. That's the ground rules of us doing theology for the next year or so. Because I'm not going to get consecutive when uh, Sunday nights. It's just not going to happen. But I'm going to use as many as I can, as long as I can, to get these things out to you. And I promise you, don't get frustrated. It won't be this complicated every night. I promise you it won't be. We'll make it easy. All right? And then theology on the flip side is the study of God. Theos is God. Logos is discourse. So the study of God, thinking about God and expressing those thoughts. Again, don't be afraid of that. Little thinkers are big stinkers. Y'all remember that, don't you? Right? I'm telling you, through all church life of the 
I'm uh, 48 years old. I started in the ministry when I was 18 years old. So for 30 years, the biggest conflicts I've ever had in the ministry have to do with people who will not think biblically. They refuse to think that way. So little thinkers are big stinkers. So it's okay to think, all right? All right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to deal with theology historically. We're going to talk. We're gonna, let me see those glasses, hon. It's a little bitty word. Y'all going to see the preacher with glasses on. I can't read that whatsoever. Okay, go ahead and tell me I look like a fool. All right, here we go. All right, here it is. Discipline. Now I can't see you out there, but here. A discipline which traces the historical development of doctrine as recorded in the writings of individuals and church councils. You know, you ever heard of the Nicene Council or uh, the Diet of Worms or any of those things you've read about? Well, we're going to look at some of those and find out what they believed, say, in 300 A.D. and 500 and 800. We're going to compare those beliefs with where we are today or where we should be today, right? All right, systematic theology is the discipline which follows a scheme of doctrinal development which incorporates into its system all the truth about God from any and every source. That's systematic theology. So we're going to deal with history, systematic, but here's the real one. This is, this is the most important one. It's called biblical theology, right? That's where we need to come down. We need to know what we believe biblically. And it says, the discipline which investigates the truth about God and the universe as set forth in the unfolding revelation of the Bible. Okay? So just think about that for a moment. We're gonna, theology deals with historical, putting it in an orderly fashion to think about it, and then trying to figure out how that meshes biblically. Or, better yet, study the Bible inductively and let it push forward what the theology of the Bible is. Because, you know, when I'm preaching, I'm bound to one thing, what that text says. I'm not bound to your opinion or what you think it should say or how you feel about it. I'm bound to what that text says. Because that text can never mean what it never meant, right? And I'm not going to make it mean what it doesn't mean, okay? I'm going to let that passage speak. So I'm bound to what's called biblical theology. To find out what the Bible actually says about itself, about a particular doctrine or belief that we have. What theologians put together as the system is not what's most important. And people get their nose bent up when you use terms like Arminianism or Calvinism. Folks, put that out of your mind. That's unimportant to me. I could care less. I'm not bound by John Calvin or Jacob Arminius or Jimmy Swaggart or anybody else out there. He's not a theologian. Well, I shouldn't have used his name. He's a long way from a theologian. But here's the deal. We are bound to the Bible. And are there tenets of some of these other systems that fit into the Bible? Well, you're a fool if you don't see it. There certainly are things in those systems. But those systems are not what's important. Those labels mean nothing. What does matter is this right here. Biblical theology. How does the Bible present such doctrines? That is what is crucial and important. And I dare say I will never, as your pastor, listen to the Scripture and tell you something that's not coming from this book. Right? My goal is not to give my opinion or a system of thought. My goal is to give you what the Bible says. Now, what I give you in the Bible borders on some of that stuff, then you let the Bible counsel out things that, that, that you don't believe, not just human reason. Because human reason doesn't like to deal with some of the mysteries in the Bible. 
We don't like to hear that. But we have to let the Word of God speak to us. Okay? And here's what we're going to do. We're going to let those three things dictate how we study Bibleology. So here's the first major doctrine of the Bible. It's called the doctrine of Scripture. Okay? You've got to start somewhere. And how has God revealed Himself? The Bible's not a picture book. It is a word book. So the Bible has... We've been given God's Word. So we're going to start off studying the doctrine of Scripture. Okay? We're going to study Revelation, uh, revealed truth, general and specific. We talked about that. That's an, general and specific would be another way of saying natural revelation and particular revelation. Okay, this is have different, different terms. Then we're going to deal with God, the doctrine of God. And in particular, we're going to talk about creation and angelology. In other words, we'll deal with the bad guys, demonic beings, and we'll talk about angels somewhat. Okay, then we're going to deal with the doctrine of man. That's important to know uh, who we are, how we were made. Then we're going to deal with the doctrine of Christ, which is called Christology, the study of Christ. Then we're going to deal with soteriology, which that's taken from a Greek word to save means is sozo. So you just add in theology, soteriology, which means the, the doctrine of salvation. We'll study that together. Then we'll study pneumatology, which is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. That's a good thing for a Baptist church to study, right? Because we get wigged out with the Holy Spirit, right? And then we're going to do, we'll deal with ecclesiology, and that's the doctrine of the church. That's doctrine number seven. And when we hit that, I want to spend some time on church polity. Elders, deacons, we'll work on that. But if you know me well enough, this is going to take a while, right? And then last things is on eschatology. Uh, how, it, how everything is going to pan out in the end. And Daryl Ward is going to teach on eschatology for us. No, he, he's not showing it. I'm a, I might get him to give us a crash course on it. The guy is well learned, no doubt about it. Reads uh, a, a lot of this stuff, not just eschatology. So we're going to have fun, all right? And in all four of those, we're going to say, what, what's the Bible say? Remember those four things I gave you at the first? How does it fit together? How is it relevant for the church? So we're going to have fun on Sunday nights. And uh, you got questions? We'll, we'll deal with those questions weekly, not tonight. <laughs> but, but we will on Sunday nights. If you've got a question, I'd be glad to entertain it. And if I don't know how to answer that off the cuff, I will say I'll bring it back to you next week. Do a better job in understanding how I should respond to that question, especially if I don't know it. <sighs> you all right with that? I could make all these notes available for you if you'd like to read them. I'll be more than happy to give them to you. And then all of these will be taped on Sunday evenings. Okay? All right. Uh, was this one taped? Yep. All right. I know which part you want to hear back over again. That's that part we got bogged down in there. But I have to give you that stuff. Okay? It's all about what is truth and why we start and how do we defend it. What, what are we looking at? It's important. Okay? So at least I can say I gave you the tough part tonight. And y'all didn't leave on me. I go to sleep. No Eutychuses. No lucky ones falling out of the balcony. That's a good thing. All right? Thanks for coming tonight. I know it probably scared people off. to see. We're going to deal with doctrine. Right. But that's just the mentality we have that's wrong. That's stinky thinking. We need, to, we need to enjoy it. Okay. We're done. What time is it, by the way? You lie. <laughs> what time is it?
6.45. We went a little over. I'm sorry about that. I, I can't see a clock. Believe me. I... All right. It's a good excuse, right? All right. Okay, let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for your love for us. And Lord, I know uh, some of the terminology is difficult. Lord, we kind of bring over from the seminary class where it's just kind of behind doors with 25 people discussing things and listening. And Lord, sometimes it's hard to bring it over to the church. But Lord, we want our people to be informed. Uh, Lord, we kind of look behind the scenes and see why we think like we do and, and why we make decisions like we make. And Lord, how you are uh, a personal awesome creator God who's who's behind all things and Lord you are the ultimate designer of all things you hold all things together and Lord we know that one day uh, you're going to release the elements of this world and we know it's going to dissolve and you're going to make a new heaven and a new earth we don't have to worry about an atomic bomb or we don't have to worry about a Russian invasion we trust a sovereign God who's going to end it all Uh, we trust you because your purpose is linear Uh, You see uh, the end from the beginning. Lord, you know it all. And Father, we trust you, our omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God who controls all things. Nothing catches you by surprise. And we trust you tonight. And we thank you that we can rest in you, our creator. And not only did you create us, but Lord, you saved our souls. And we're so thankful for it. And we just pray this in Christ's name. Amen.